Hi, I'm Bob Switzer, and this is the Epic Narrative. All right, let me uh, let me just talk uh, a little bit. I, I know, I know, we got to get David anointed so we could actually move on in the story, but I want to talk a little bit about just the culture, what culture of fear does, because I, I know I mentioned it uh, and and the fact that both, I believe both Samuel and Saul created a culture of fear around them. But I think <clears throat> that um, it's important to kind of break that down into, into how that gets infiltrated into people's lives. So sometimes um, the, the culture of fear Really, fear itself, right? Its goal is death. Uh, fear wants to destroy relationships. Uh, it destroys goals and dreams because you're afraid of what might happen. Uh, it it'll it'll eat away your identity until you don't have any. It'll eat away your purpose. It'll eat away life, really itself. Um, it it's just. It's really sourced in a lie of the enemy. It's it's one of the enemy's, um, you know, most powerful weapons because it's not as powerful as love and goodness, but it's the closest thing he's got. Like it's it's the closest thing he's got to the exact opposite of love. It's fear because love does the the exact opposite. Love brings people together. It gives you goals. It gives you relationship. It it helps you dream. It. it it gives you identity. It, it, you know, swells up your life with purpose. It's love is the opposite of fear. So <clears throat> when, when you have a culture of fear developing around you, uh, you'll, a culture of fear creates this mindset of lack, uh, of pain, and someone like Saul, like a, like I, I'm, uh, you know, we talked about him carrying around a spear all the time. Like there's always a threat of death. There's always going to be uh, like a breakup of community, separation of people. That's what a culture of fear does, right? It looks when 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 people who are overseeing, like in a when when they're in leadership, somebody who's in leadership that has a culture of fear are gonna they're gonna naturally divide people whether it's by um, the use of gossip or the use of, of ethnicity or the or religion or um, gender or you know what whatever like it doesn't matter like uh, fear when you're developing a culture of fear you are constantly looking to divide people so when you live from a place of fear, you have this sense of scarcity. So you begin collecting things, hoarding things. Uh, you begin looking around going, well, we better save that. We we might need it someday. Wait, wait. You never know what will happen. Like that's, that's a phrase you'll hear. You, you never know, you know, I, I'm afraid, I'm afraid something might happen. I'm afraid something might happen. Let's hang on to that. You know, we, we, maybe we can fix it. Maybe we can use it for something else. I, I I don't know. I I I just I'm afraid to get rid of that. Uh, I, I'm afraid of what might happen. 
it's it's that's how that's how a culture of fear gets you know uh, comes out of you so to speak how you start to hear things um, you become selfish self-preservation and often you'll do that uh, you'll you'll you know so your self-preservation will come through um, through gossip like you'll gossip about other people or you'll spread rumors you'll turn people in for breaking the law or or not being you know, not being the best kind of neighbor or like at least currently, like in my current world, you know, um, you see somebody without a face mask and you'll lean over. Oh, I don't, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable with them in here. And, and you just separate yourself from people and you manipulate people and you try to control your circumstances. It's really a victim mentality. Fear leads right into this victim mentality where you, where you mock and compare other, compare yourself to others. And of course, you're always better off than they are. Um, you start to think like everything happens to me. You start planning on bad things happening to you, right? Always happening to you. And you know, you get a little sniffle, you get a little cough and you start planning on getting sick. And you're like, oh, this always happens this time of year. This always happens to me. This always happens. Things are finally going right. And I finally got back to work and now I'm going to be sick and I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'll probably lose my job. Those are the sort of things like that's the culture that I'm talking about. When when we talk about the culture of fear that Saul had created, he created this place of of scarcity, this this idea of separation, this this lack of community, this lack of connection. It's it's a real thing. And, and a lot of, I, you know, I'm not going to. Uh, get much more specific than that but people in leadership often use fear because because politics right politics by design divides people because you're you're asking people to vote one way or the other i, I don't care how big the politics the, the the election is so to speak but modern western society says we need to divide the people, and I need more people on my side than that side. Now, a culture of love would say, I need to unite all the people together and we'll move forward. It's it's a weird, it seems like a weird thing to do if you're in politics. It seems like a weird thing to do to say, let's get everyone on the same page and move forward. Now, usually after someone gets elected, that's their goal, right? Well, now that I'm elected, <laughs> right it's crazy but they'll have these things right they'll say hey i am i have a mandate i have a mandate to become the next uh leader of the you know of the people and i will unite the people once you get me elected once once i divide the people up and get more voting for me than you afterwards i'll i'll unite everybody because my ideas are so good and my cabinets are so good and my Blah, 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 blah. Okay, enough about politics. Now, on to David. Now, if you're hearing a hum in the background, as I've told you before, I'm in my basement and I have no idea why because it's a, it's it's August, but my burner just turned on. So if you hear a little hum in the background, I'm guessing the hot water needs to be warmed up or something because it's running. I don't know why. All right, so just wanted you to know. Just wanted you to know. I do this in my basement. It's just fun for me. Here, we, uh, yeah, and it's early morning. It's early morning. My wife is sleeping. That's the other reason why I do it in the basement because 
I'm a morning person. She's not so much, although she does get up in the morning, but takes her a while to really get going in the morning. And uh, I love her to death. And I was like, yeah, if I do this in the living room, you're going to hear this. You're going to hear me because I get excited when I tell stories. So here we go. So Samuel shows up, if you remember correctly, uh, if I remember correctly, Samuel shows up in Bethlehem. The elders are nervous. They're afraid. They literally are asking him, are you here to kill us? Because it's that it's that fear world that they live in. The rumors had started, uh, you know, Samuel's moving, Samuel's doing something. We need to, we need to keep, be careful of what's going on. Oh, here he's, he's in our town. Oh my goodness. What are you doing? He's like, no, no, I'm here to, uh, you know, to, uh, do a sacrifice. And I'd like everybody there. So everybody gets sanctified, glorified, cleaned up. They all show up. It's a big party. Jesse's clearly his family is being honored. His seven sons are there. Their wives are there. Everybody's doing great. Everybody's excited. And um, Samuel, when they arrived, when everybody arrives, right, Samuel uh, holds off like nobody's eating yet. They've, they've done the sacrifice. They've all arrived. And Samuel sees the firstborn son. What is his name? Elab. I, I, listen, I, I am not good at names. I'm not even good at names in real life, like in regular everyday life. You should see me. I, I coach swimming and oh, sweet Lord, I feel so bad for these kids. Every single week they're telling me their names and I'm just like, I can't enunciate them. Bless their heart. I, I love that they're so creative. I just can't. I can't. Anyway, so I'm sorry. If, if you're out there and you know how to enunciate Hebrew names and you you cringe when you hear me say that I'm uh, I I apologize. It will happen for the next whatever number of hours we're in this. I will I will not enunciate things very well. All right, so Elab comes and Samuel's thought is this: Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. Like he's. I just want you to know, prophets can get it wrong. This is not, uh, this is the part that, that often when people consider themselves a prophet, and I don't know what your theologies are. Uh, I, I, I have rotated, not rotated, I've grown through multiple theologies. And I grew up in a, in a place that literally, uh, you know, to begin with, my theology was there are no prophets, there are no apostles. You know, they've been, in essence, cut off by God. They were cut off, and I had the quote, <laughs> I had I had verses that I could quote that would prove my point, right? So anyways, so if you don't believe in prophets, that's fine. Maybe you believe in them for this time period. Maybe you're, you know, in your head, which is, again, fine. I, I, I'm, I don't think it's evil to think that the first covenant has a completely different set of rules and character of God than the second covenant. I think you can, you can believe that, you know, and, and still go to heaven. I don't think you're a sinner. Okay. I, I, I know Bob's Bob, Bob's up. He's like, why did you start without me? <laughs> I, I told you, cause I get excited. I get, I woke up at two 30 this morning. No, seriously. I woke up at two 30 this morning and I started thinking about this story. And I was like, I'm not going to go back to sleep. But I did. I dozed off. 
and on. And I'd wake up thinking about the story and I'd be like, oh my gosh, what time is it? Oh, it's 3.15. And then I woke up again at 3.45. And then I finally just got out of bed at, you know, 4.45 because I was like, ah, I got to get going. So here I am. Sorry. Well, that's when I texted you. So you got here. Awesome. Good to see you. All right. Here we go. So Eleb comes, the prophet, the one who hears from God, looks at the firstborn son and says, surely this is it. Surely. He is absolutely convinced his job is over. I've got the next king right here. And the Lord says, uh, nope. Don't look at how good looking he is, how tall he is. This is not the one I want. Now, the the phrasing that translators have put in English is, I have rejected him, which sounds horrible. To me, that's one of those nuances that a translator puts in because that's his opinion about what God does, that he accepts and rejects people. I don't believe God does that because I don't believe Jesus did that. And we can, you know, you can ask me other, if you want me to go further into that, you can email me and I will you know, deal with that question on a separate podcast, but I don't think it just, it just sounds horrible. I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at people at the, you know, people, how they look and their outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart and that's true. And he looks at the heart and it's not that Elab was this horrible person and, and God hated him. It's that he looked at his heart and he said, listen, I, he's a great guy. He is handsome and he is tall and he does have a great family and he clearly knows what what to do in leadership. I mean, these are these guys weren't raised by a by a dope. Jesse was was a good man. He wasn't a great father, especially to David. As we talked about, uh, you know, before he rejected David from day one. But. It's not like he just raised a bunch of idiots or a bunch of horribly arrogant bribe takers like Samuel did. But God's saying, listen, I'm I'm looking for the heart that knows that I love him because that's the difference. You know, that's what Saul is having trouble with. Not that Saul can't get it, but that's the that's what Saul's having trouble with. And that's why he's opened himself up to so many results of sin is because he just keeps making these choices to protect himself. He makes these choices that that come from places that aren't love, that aren't goodness, that aren't kindness, that aren't me. So I need somebody who knows that I love them. So regardless of their choices, they always come back to me. They understand that I will always love them and accept them. So that's what he's saying in this moment. The phrasing, I have rejected him, just just. I think it gives a picture of God that isn't true. And that's why I wanted to spend some time on it. So he goes and he calls uh, Abinadab. Uh, nope, that's not him. Uh, Shamaha, that's not him. <laughs> I'm trying to read through these names. Uh, da, 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 da. He gets through all the sons. Now, for me, I just, you know, for me, I think it's funny to think of the sons because the sons, the sons understand what's happening here. They know that Samuel, you know, at this point, they know Samuel's here to pick the next king. So Jesse's excited. The sons are excited. They're all, in essence, lined up. 
every one of them had to believe that the firstborn son was going to be the the firstborn. It was going to be the king. They had to. He was probably, quote, considered the best looking one. He had been around the longest. He understood all of, you know, all of the life uh, skills and experiences that he's had like this. This had to be the one. So even though they're all in line and they think, well, maybe there's a chance, you know, all of us have a chance of getting there. I don't I think internally they were all like, you know, we, we all know what this dog and pony shows for. Like it's we're just here to do our to line up to show the blessings that have been poured out on dad and on this family. And then when we're done, you know, we can all eat. That's they're all waiting to eat. So when the first son is rejected, which had to be, trust me, the firstborn son, right? He, he's got to believe I'm, I'm going to be anointed. I mean, why wouldn't I be? There's a lot of pressure on firstborn sons. And, and I understood when, when we had our firstborn son, which was our first child, as I was raising him more, uh, you know, uh, as I was raising, you know, he was growing up and we were raising him and, I realized more and more why God gave extra blessing to the firstborn because there is a lot of pressure. And, and we used to tell our, our firstborn son is, uh, we used to tell him, you know, we're, you're, you, we, we don't know what we're doing. You're our first child. Like we're, we're still learning. We we're learning how to be parents on you. And we would apologize. Oh my goodness, the number of times we we would you know sit with them and just say, "Listen, mom and dad are really sorry. Like we we did what we thought was right, and looking back, it probably wasn't the best choice. We should have handled that differently." And there was so there we we have a great relationship with them. But just so you know, I I I, I the firstborn son also understands that they get the first stuff. They get to do the new thing, and that becomes a blessing. So I would imagine he's standing there thinking, this is awesome. And then, you know, what, what does Samuel do? How does Samuel, uh, this is the part that you get to make up, right? How does he do this? Does he just stare at him, you know, close his eyes and hear the voice of the Lord saying, nope, not him. And pat him on the shoulder, you know, grab him by the back of the neck and look at him and say, I'm sorry, it's not you. Like, what does he do? Like, what does the firstborn son do? That had to be devastating to realize, oh my gosh, it's not me. It's not me. I'm not the chosen one. I've always been. Like, I've always been. Oh man, I'm telling you, this had to blow his mind. Blow his mind. And then where does he go? Does he stay in the tent? I don't know. I, I don't know if they're in the tent or outside the tent, but at some level, somebody knows what that he just got rejected. Like the rumors start spreading. The wives are probably, if they're in a tent, the wives are probably in a separate tent waiting to eat, waiting to bring the food in. And the rumors start. It, it wasn't, it wasn't Elab. It wasn't, it wasn't. He didn't, he didn't pick him. And, and his wife is probably thinking, oh my gosh, well, what does that mean? Meanwhile, the other six sons standing in line are like, oh, he could be one of us. Like their hopes just explode within them. 
even even if they are able to keep their faces still, which I'm guessing a couple of them can. I mean, I've I've raised uh, we we had we had three boys and one daughter, and you know they all oh they all express themselves differently. So I imagine some stayed real stoic, some probably started to smile, and some probably were like yes, like a little fist pump. Like trying not to be too demonstrative because that might upset father. So they're excited. They're excited. Oh man, it could be us. One of us. Finally, finally, the biggest blessing doesn't go to the firstborn. Finally, one of us. And Samuel goes to the secondborn and then the thirdborn and they each get rejected. And, and I'm guessing. And I know I use the word rejected. I know that's a terrible word, but they each get passed on, passed over, uh, uh, told that they're awesome young men, but not, it's not you. It's not you. Like that's still hard. That's still a hard thing to hear, even if you halfway expected it, because I'm sure their hopes went really high when the firstborn was not, was not chosen. And now it's like, oh. So by the time he's getting to number five and six, they're thinking it's got to be one of the two of us. Like I got a 50-50 chance of being anointed the next king of Israel. Seriously. Their, like their hearts had to be pounding. They probably had to go to the bathroom. In, but of course, they weren't going to leave the line. But, but I mean, they're probably thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. It's one of us, it's one of us, it's one of us. And it's not number five, or it's not number six, right? And so number seven is like ecstatic. Because who else could it be? There's no one else left in the room. He is so excited. I'm going to be the next king. And Samuel's looking at him, and I'm sure he's got a big, you know, the, the son has got this big smile on his face. And he, and he just is like, like waiting for the words and and waiting for the oil to come out and to be you know poured over his head and he probably he probably smiles really big and he bows his head like yeah like like pour the oil on my head and Samuel is looking at him and he's probably thinking lord what what wait i hear you say it's not him either it's not him either like wait i mean as a prophet he's Samuel's probably going wait did i miss something did i do I have to line them all up again? Like, what's, what is going on? And again, I, I think Samuel's you know, like, I just picture this one, the pause, so to speak, goes double, maybe triple what the other ones were. Because as Samuel's working his way down the line, he's he keeps thinking, well, it's, you know, I still got options. You know, at least it's not him, but at least I still got options. I still got options. He gets to the last one and he hears the same thing from the Lord. Mm, no, it's not him either. And Samuel's thinking, well, well, I've got like I'm out of options. If I if I tell him no, like what it, what am I doing? And I think at that point he probably got a sense. He probably sensed the Lord saying, "There's another. There's another son." But clearly the son wasn't there. So Samuel looks to Jesse and he says, 
you know, I kind of think he didn't even tell, like, I think he said this out loud, probably with his hand on the shoulder of the youngest son, but he looks at Jesse and he says, well, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Like none of, none of these are them. They're wonderful people. Um, but none of, I, I didn't, I didn't get, I didn't get the word from the Lord on any of them. So sometimes, you know, just, just so you know, as a prophet, you know, he would know that sometimes the timing's off. Like you get a word from the Lord, but it's just not for now. And, and you get it, you get, you know, so maybe, maybe Samuel's thinking, listen, like it's none of these, at least for now, it's none of these today. Maybe, maybe I'll come back. And then he asked this, he said, are these all the sons that you have? Now, remember, Jesse rejected David from day one. He treated him as a servant. He had him raised as a servant. Even though he might have at some level understood, yes, I impregnated. Well, no, he no, I'm sorry. He didn't. He didn't ever acknowledge that he impregnated his wife. Never acknowledged that. But here he is being asked by the prophet, do you have any others? So the fact that he answered yes tells me that deep down he knows he had he had sex with somebody that night. He thought it was the young servant girl. So deep down, he he knew David was his son. But he refused to acknowledge it. No one else publicly ever heard him say David was his son. I think that his his wife, the, his first wife, the one who bore him the seven others, I think she told him many times, Jesse, you know, like while she's pregnant, Jesse, you know this is yours. And he would say, no, no, it's not. It is. It is yours, Jesse. And, and he refused. And when, we, when David was born and he looked like the other sons, and it was really clear that Jesse was the father. Jesse was like, I'm not claiming him. I can't. I'm not. I'm not. Like, I, I, I'm not going to do it. So when, when he's asked, are these all the sons you have? Jesse's answer was really intense. It it carried a lot of weight. There is still the youngest, he said. You know, he's he's tending the sheep. And that phrasing, um, that he's tending the sheep, like it's it's that I in the in the Hebrew, it's like he's right, he's right, he's right over there. Like he's he was within eyesight of this whole deal. David was very much aware that the whole family, all the sons, the whole family were being invited to a big banquet. He was aware that the whole town was in in an uproar over the fact that Samuel was in town. It wasn't like he was, you know, um, ignorant of what's going on. Everyone in town would have known because, like like I said, Samuel arrives. He's going to do a sacrifice. This is going to involve, you know, a a village-wide party or the citywide party, Jesse's family's being um, honored. Samuel sanctified them himself. Uh, He's going through each son. 
the whole village, the whole town is watching what's going on. They're talking about what's going on. Son after son after son is rejected. And Samuel turns and says, "Is are these all your sons? And Jesse says, there's one more. He's over there on the hill tending the sheep. And Samuel says, well, then I guess uh, we're not going to eat. We're not going to, quote, sit down until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. I'm, I'm sure he looked at his right-hand man and said, go get David. And they went and brought him in. Now, I, I don't I, I don't know if they cleaned him up. I don't know if they threw a robe on him. I don't know what he was wearing as a shepherd. I mean, I've seen all the pictures. I, you know, I've colored all the little drawings growing up in Sunday school. Like, I, But I don't know really what he was wearing. I don't know if they cleaned him up. I would think that at some level they they cleaned him up. They fixed his hair, put a new put a new wrap on his head, um, maybe threw a robe on him because I'm guessing he didn't wear robes in the you know in the uh, in his job. And it says when they brought him in, he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. He was Rudy, is what is what some of the. <laughs> that's just a funny word. He was just a good-looking kid. Some think he had kind of reddish hair. I don't know. But he was good-looking. He was good-looking. And honestly, all the sons of, of Jesse were considered to be pretty handsome young men. And we, we find out later, like, the sons that David had were all considered really good-looking. And then he had a couple sons that were, like, outstanding, like... So I kind of picture this family. Oh man, I wish I could remember the name of that from Game of Thrones. The uh, not the Unsullied, the drag, the drag. Oh, the guys with the dark hair and the big chests. That uh, you never wanted to meet them on an open on an open field in battle. How can I remember all that? And not remember the name of them. Anyways, I picture him kind of looking like that. Maybe with a little different style of, of hair, but he had, you know, he, he was a, he was a stunning physical specimen. And the Lord said, yep, that's the one. Now, what's interesting is the Bible mentions the fact that he, that his outward appearance was good looking. And, and, you know, when the firstborn son came up and he was good looking, God's like, yeah, I don't, I don't look at the outward appearance. It doesn't mean that outward appearance isn't acknowledged. It doesn't mean that, you know, only ugly people get in. I have no idea what ugly is either. I mean, I've, I've been alive so long that I've seen, you know, fashion come and go. I've seen what's considered good looking come and go. It's, it's, it's funny to me, but so I don't know what this really is, but the Bible does make it make mention, like it makes it clear. Yes, this kid was good looking. And the Lord said, but I'm after his heart. And so this one has the heart that I'm looking for. He's somebody who's confident that I love him. He has spent time with me in the spirit realm. He's, he's connected with me in worship. He knows my heart. I know his heart. We have relationship it's not that he rejected the other sons because they were bad people. It's that he had a deep relationship with David already. He said, David listens to me. 
David, David hears me. I hear him. He knows that I hear him. You see, David, David didn't have a father to talk to. David had servants to talk to. David had a mom to talk to. And his mom, his mom taught him how to hear God. She taught him how to interact with heaven because she knew I can't spend a lot of time raising you. I can't, I can't put you at the family dinners to hear wisdom from your dad. I can't put you in places where most sons would gather wisdom, but I can, I can teach you enough about God that, that you can develop a relationship with him. And David went deep into that relationship. He went deep. So Samuel anoints him in the presence of the brothers. Now, that's a huge, that's a huge deal. Because Jesse just said, I do have one more son. He's the youngest. He's over there, like on the hillside, tending sheep. And the brothers had to be looking at him like, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what did dad just say? Did he just admit that David was a son? Because this would have been probably the first time they heard him say it. And he said it publicly in front of the brothers and in front of Samuel. And then the Lord anoints him. Or Samuel anoints him and it says the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day forward. So the brothers hear dad say, yes, that's one of my sons. He, they basically, Samuel is saying, God knows that this is your son. Because I came here to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, the next king of Israel. So this is God's confirmation. Like the, the, the internal emotions of David at this point. Here he is being, being called in from the field, right? Some servant, some uh, house officer comes running up he's like david your father wants you to come and stand with this the sons in front of samuel like david's heart had to leap as he's running in from the field his eyes had to be wide he had to be so excited that he was going to be honored and put into connection with the father and and his brothers I don't know if you've ever struggled with acceptance from your family, but David understands what that's like. He knows what that's like. And here was a public display in which his father called him in from the field to stand with his brothers. He was going to be acknowledged in publicly as part of the family. And then I'm sure his mother was so, so uh, enraptured by this moment. Because again, she had spent her life raising sons, and yet there was one son that her husband never acknowledged. There was one son that was sent out as a servant, that she would only see eating with the servants, that she would only be able to periodically interact with because his role was out in the fields. He was being trained up as a, as a shepherd boy, somebody who could Literally, like there was nowhere to go. Like there was no upward momentum as a shepherd. You were just hired. In this case, he wasn't even hired. Like he didn't get paid for this. This was his job in, in, the, in Jesse's family. 
It's so funny because I keep doing like these little uh, quotes, hand quotes, and nobody can see me. <laughs> Bob's over there laughing. You're right. I know. It's a good quote, though. Family. So David's running in from the fields, right? He's he's so excited. He stands there, maybe with a robe on, maybe with a new hat, new wrap on his head. His mother, I think, is probably, you know, peeking in through the curtains. Samuel's hears the phrase, you know, hears the Lord say, yep, that's the guy. And he stands up and he anoints David. And all of a sudden, like, like David feels this incredible warmth of God's love. Like that's what the the spirit of the Lord is, right? The spirit of the Lord is is love and joy and peace. Like this had to come so heavy on him. He probably began to weep because he he was being acknowledged publicly as a son of, of Jesse and now before heaven. Heaven was literally screaming out from the heaven from the from the rooftops this child is a son of Jesse acknowledged by God like God's approval on David as a son of Jesse was being was being uh, uh, just it was loud it was being ex- it was it was a big moment I guess I know I'm trying trying to find words I can't find words Words are disappearing out of my head. This was huge. And I don't, again, I don't know if you've ever struggled with the lack of a father's love. But David, David never really understood a father who loved him. He never understood Jesse as someone who loved him. And so to have this moment of acknowledgement, have this moment of acceptance, to have this moment that not only publicly displayed to the world that, you know, that Jesse knew that he was his son, but also spiritually displayed to the world that God knows that it's Jesse's son. This is, this is a big moment. It's a big moment. So I assume at this point, I mean, the, the, the kind of the end of this little, this little, event it says and then samuel basically went home but he wouldn't have just gone home because why was he there he was there to sacrifice a uh you know a cow and then to have a big banquet they were all waiting for someone to get anointed so they could all sit down to eat and that's exactly what i'm sure happened after after he was anointed I'm guessing the people cheered because they knew that, man, there is, there is a next, you know, there's the next son. uh, One of the sons of Jesse is now going to be the next King of Israel. Like there's, there's a lot of pride and excitement in that. And then I'm sure a lot of people were befuddled and confused. And at the banquet, I'm, I have no doubt that many wanted to talk to Jesse Right. Many of them probably wanted to be like, Jesse, uh, I thought you said your wife slept with someone else. That David wasn't your boy, Jesse, what's going on? 
Jesse had some Jesse had some serious questions to answer from a lot of elders, a lot of powerful people in his in his city. And he knew that this was going to get out to the world. Because rumors do. And in a and in a culture of fear, I got it right. We go back to that that culture of fear, gossip, rumors, manipulation, anything to control other people was information people used quickly. So the idea that Jesse had been hiding and denying his actual son, had been treating him like a servant, was a big, big deal. And everybody wanted to know, now that he's anointed the next king of Israel, what are you going to do, Jesse? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, we'll find out, right? What did Jesse do? He sent him back to work in the fields. I don't even know if David got to be part of the banquet. I, I get a sense in my own spirit that, that there was probably a moment in there in which Jesse felt obligated in front of Samuel <laughs> to treat David nice and probably gave him a seat of honor. And I'm sure the brothers were livid. And I know that, I mean, I'm, I'm taking that from, you know, further on down the, down the line, uh, other nuances in the story, but they could not have been happy over the fact that one, David was acknowledged as a son. So, so they all had been lied to. And even if they knew that David was one of his sons, they all had been part of the lie to the rest of the world. So there was, there was a lot of um, angst negative emotions flying around that bet that banquet room because everybody knew somebody somebody had lied somebody had been deceived somebody wasn't telling us the truth this whole time i mean according to uh you know psalm 69 the drunks even had songs about how david wasn't considered a son of jesse they mocked his identity so everybody knew this, and now everybody's being, in essence, publicly told, no, that is my son. Oh, and God's actually telling everybody, I know that this is the son of Jesse. I don't make those kind of mistakes. I know who this kid is. This was this was a big deal. I kind of think that the banquet went from this huge celebration to this, this confused kind of, uh, it was probably a weird atmosphere. You ever been to to a banquet or to a wedding and some weddings are nothing but fun, right? You just, oh my gosh, you just have a great time all the time, right? And other weddings you're at and it just kind of like things don't really flow right. Uh, it's not that people are bad or anything like just, uh, just, I don't know, the atmosphere is just kind of weird. And maybe it's because there was, you know, a big fight the night before or the week before or in-laws or now outlaws, what, whatever or the ex shows up or whatever. And and it's just kind of like this you know, this thread of negativity that's in the atmosphere. I kind of think that that's probably what happened at this banquet. There was this thread, not underlying, but literally being woven into the conversations, right? People are enjoying something to eat, but while they're talking, maybe in hushed tones, maybe some of them got loud because they thought it was funny, right? There's people who don't like Jesse, I'm sure. Powerful people aren't loved by everyone. 
So I'm sure there's some who don't love Jesse who were like, oh, that dog, you see what he did? You see what he did? Oh, man, that was that was bad. That was bad. He'd been lying to us for years. I knew that guy was. A, I mean, so you got those guys and you got other people who are like, you know, uh, I'm sticking with Jesse. Jesse's a good guy. Uh, I don't know what this whole deal is with with uh, David being his son. But, you know, Samuel shows up out of nowhere, anoints uh, somebody who we don't really know. I mean, he's a shepherd boy. He does. You know, he's a servant, raises a servant. I don't know what happened today. I, you know, I'm just going to enjoy the meal. Let's just let's just enjoy the meal. So you, you just got a lot of uh, a lot of stuff bubbling around in the in the atmosphere. And then you got, you know, just people having a good time because it's a party and they don't really care that Jesse lied about his son. They don't really care that Samuel showed up and anointed him. They're just like, hey, <laughs> we're here for the food or we're here for the wine or both. They're having a good time. And in all of that, David, I think, has quite a mix of emotions. Because I think he's 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 alert to this, right? David's a, a musician, an artist, he has a sensitive spirit. David is actually quite a quite a complicated man, and we'll we'll get into that more. But I think that David understands, like he's looking at his father's face, he's looking at Jesse's face, and he knows Jesse's not happy that one of his quote, seven sons, wasn't picked. That number eight was picked. And even though publicly he had to acknowledge that David was his son and that spiritually God acknowledged that David was his son, he could probably tell by his father's reaction, the, the, the subtle uh, look on his face, the way that he didn't really smile wholeheartedly when he congratulated David. When he got done with his first plate of food and and uh, had some wine and, and Jesse says, well, you better get back to work. That's, that's what I think happened. And David honored his father and said, yes, sir. And he leaves the banquet while it's still going on. And that's when the brothers all like surround Jesse. They're like, dad, what's the deal? What's going on? What are we going to do with David? He's like, don't worry. I sent David back to work. And that's where he'll be. We have a king. His name is Saul. And that's what I know. And that's the way that's the way it's left. So David has this huge, intense, positive of. uh experience of acceptance and anointing and love and and just like it's just ridiculous how intense that was i i can't describe it and you know that because you've listened to this and you know i've just fuddled over my words i just can't express the depth of emotion that had to be going on and then by the end of the night david's back to the fields he's back to the sheep and I have no doubt the, the backside of these emotions were also there. A father who rejected him, brothers who rejected him, left out under the stars. And the only thing that's there for him is the spirit of God, is God's presence.
And David lies there under the beautiful stars as he had for many years. And I think David sang and he played because the presence of God always brings you peace. It always brings you joy because that is the presence of God. For in the presence of God is fullness of joy. And that doesn't mean that it's always laughter. There's a depth to joy that, that many people never get to because they haven't found it in the, in the dark places. They haven't found reasons to be grateful and joyful in the dark places. But David had. So there's a depth to David's joy. There's a depth to the words that he sings that, that no one else can get to. They're blessed by it because David's done the work to find it. But when you go to deep, when you find places to be grateful in the deep, dark places, when you, when you are in places where you can't see a way out, where you have no idea what to do, when you are, when you are despised and rejected and mocked by everyone around you, and yet you can find moments where you are, you know, where you lay down or sit down and you close your eyes and you feel God say, but I love you. I have not rejected you. I am with you. And not only do you hear that, but you, you literally start to feel a joy come into you. Like you, you start to smile and people that know that you're going through this, they may, they may see you and think, and, and, and actually ask you, where, you know, where, well, how are you able to smile in all this? Like, this is a horrible circumstance. This is a terrible situation that you're in. You've been, like, you, you are going through some horrible things. How do you find your joy? You find it in the presence of God. And I think that's where David went that night. That's where he spent his night. In the presence of God, I think he was completely swept away into the into the spirit, you know, into the spirit of God, and 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 into a mystical experience. There, I said it. <laughs> I'm not. I, I just think God can do that for people. I don't care. If, I don't care what your theology is on this. I, uh, you know, I know that there are some who get really nervous. Oh, mystical, mystical things. You know, that only happens to New Age people. New Age, that's the devil. That's of the devil. Or devil, the devil gives mystical. You know, God doesn't do this. God is the word. The word. The word is what gives us our experience with God. You cannot have a mystical experience unless you're you're soaking in the word. Awesome. So what you're telling me is the only spirit realm where you can experience a mystical uh, connection is in the is in evil. That's what that's what you're saying. God God doesn't give you an opportunity to connect with Him in a mystical way. That's fine. Then to, to trust me on this, then you will you won't experience a mystical connection to God because you get what you have faith for. And if you don't have faith for that kind of mystical experience, you won't get it. God's not going to force it on you. He's not rude. Love isn't rude. He's kind. And if you don't want to ever be enraptured into heaven and, and, and soak in his presence, 
to the point where you lose all consciousness of circumstances around you. And the only thing you can sense and feel and hear is, is the presence of God and the word of God, the words of love, because God is love. So every word he speaks is love. And love brings life. Love brings identity. Love brings purpose. Love expands your dreams and love lets you know that you have a relationship and you can connect to other people. And I think that's what David went through when he, when he, when he was sent back to work from the banquet. And I think it's why this verse ends so abruptly. Samuel then went back to Ramah. Because I think Samuel saw what was going on as well, and, and it bummed him out. I don't think he stayed for very long. He was like, you know what, I'm Jesse, I'm, uh, I'm tired. I'm going to head home. You know, have, have a good night. I don't think uh, Jesse was real happy about what Samuel did because he wasn't happy with what God just did. You know, Jesse was embarrassed. He was uh, exposed. And his response to that was, to double down and to continue to treat David like a servant. And he required his sons to back him up. And they all did. All of them had a choice right there. All of them could have said, you know what? We're coming in behind David as one of our brothers. None of them did. They all lived in a culture of fear. They were like, I'm not going to sacrifice what I have. That's what, that's what fear does, right? I'm going to keep what I got. I'm going to hoard it. I'm not going to let bad things happen to me. Yeah, protection, self-preservation. Those are all aspects of, of a culture of fear. And that's, uh, that's where this lands. The family goes back to, quote, normal, pretends nothing happened. David goes back out into the fields. And he knows something happened. And he and God are connected at at a level far deeper than he ever, you know, ever was before. And I'm guessing his mom either snuck out to see him or sent a message out to see him and probably said something like, you know, I'm really proud of you. I'm really excited what God has for you. I don't know what all this means and I don't know when it'll happen, but I know that God is good and that he loves you and I love you too. I just think she's awesome. I know I don't know her. I know she's not even mentioned in the Bible. Bob, how can you talk about somebody who's not even there? It's just about the word. <laughs> well, she had to be there because she clearly had many children involved in this story. So I have a feeling she did this because I think that's who she was. And if you read history books and Jewish tradition and oral oral uh, traditions that have been written down. She was a pretty awesome lady. And that's where I get that from. So I'm sorry, it's not a quote from scripture, but I think she did. I think she sent that back out to him. And I think David received that as just another beautiful stream of encouragement from heaven. That there was somebody who loved him. But he also deep down knew she 
she she did not champion him. She wasn't willing to lose the family and her other sons over David. She wasn't going to walk out of the house and say, I'm sticking with the one who's anointed by God. She stayed in her role as first wife and mother of seven sons. That was her role. She oversaw a household filled with servants. And some of them were shepherds. And one of those shepherds was a son of hers named David. And she loved him and probably gave him some, like I said, words of encouragement and maybe a couple, a little bit of extra treatment. But generally, David looked at his mom and knew she really chose the family over him. So as awesome and as wonderful as she was, there was some pain there. And David understood that. I think, I think in the love that he had experienced from God, he looked at, a, at the heart of his father and he said, I, I love him and I do understand why he struggles. He struggles with this because he felt rejected by society because his bloodline wasn't pure. And I think he looked at his mom and said, I understand this. I understand because love is understanding and love is kind and love is gentle. And David interacted with love all the time. And he looked at his mom and he said, I understand, mom. I get it. I do. I don't blame you. I'm not upset with you. And I appreciate the encouragement and the love you've given me because you've connected me to heaven in such a way that I, you know, very few could ever know. And God has a plan for me. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. And clearly, you know, dad's not going to help me get there. <laughs> and my brothers aren't going to help me get there. So this has to be a God journey. This has to be a God thing or it doesn't happen. But thanks, mom. Thanks for getting me as far as I did. And I appreciate what little encouragement you can send me. I take deep into my heart. And that's, uh, that's yeah, I guess that's where we're going to end it. But I think it's a, you know, it's a good story. And it's a beautiful opportunity for us to understand what happened when David got anointed king. It was pretty intense. And I hope you enjoyed it. And we'll continue the story. We will continue the story. <laughs> Man, we just got started. Holy smokes. And thank you guys for coming. Have a great night. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Epic Narrative. If you have questions for Bob or would like to reach out for booking, please email us at thebobswitzer at gmail.com or visit thebobswitzer.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Epic Narrative Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. See you next week for another chapter in our story on The Epic Narrative. The Epic Narrative.